So it turns out, if you happen to have gone through the education system in Singapore, there might be a chance that the better you are at math, science and reading, the more you are afraid of failure. You're listening to You Play A What, a podcast by a musician for musicians. My name is Vincent and I play the euphonium. Join me as I sit down with successful musicians to talk about their specialization, inspirations, and career developments. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to episode 35 of You Play A What. I hope all of you are keeping well and staying safe. So, of course, uh, we know that there has been a slight increase in the number of COVID cases over the last couple of days. Not to extend that it should be any call for concern, but we know that the festive period is around the corner, Chinese New Year is coming, and we know what happened after Chinese New Year last year. Things sort of, uh, things sort of went to a halt and we had to stop our, our work for a couple of months. So hopefully there would not be a repeat of that. Then again, it would probably give me a bit more time to do some more of the podcast. But anyway, uh, back to today's episode. Actually, I contemplated on taking a break this week. Of course, I can use the typical excuses of being like super swamped and I don't have time and things like that. But yeah, I just haven't gotten around uh, to do it, you know, uh, to record an episode, get in touch with guests and, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, yeah, it was only a day before today's release that um, I found out some quite interesting information which sparked my interest. So I went to dig a little bit uh, that is related to the work that we do uh, as CCA instructors and teachers. So the title of today's episode says it all. It's regarding the fear of failure. I attended a virtual meeting for CCA coaches and instructors by a school that I was working with a few days ago. So during the principal address, what was being told to the coaches was that students that has participated in the program for international student assessment, which is a long form of PISA, P-I-S-A, was that Singapore ranked second out of the 77 participating countries in reading, mathematics, and science. So that calls for celebration, isn't it? We are just behind China. So China got first, we got second. But uh, on the other side of the coin, we were also ranked second in having the fear of failure. In this meeting, the principal highlighted that the school has a higher than national average which of course is slightly alarming. So before we get further into today's conversation about the fear of failure, just some background about PISA. If you are interested, if not, I guess you can fast forward. Uh, it is essentially a reading slash mathematics slash science test. It also includes a student questionnaire that finds out more about the frame of mind of students and what they are afraid of in their learning and whether they are resilient and, and things like that. So this test or this survey happens every three years. The last time it happened was in 2018, I believe. So I think they're, they're going to have another round of this 
test at this year in 2021. Uh, participants are all 15 year old. The point of this survey, as according to the website of PISA, is uh, to empower school leaders and teachers by providing them with evidence-based analysis of their students' performance, measure students' knowledge, skills, competencies that will equip them for success in education and the world of work, provide valuable information on the learning climate within a school, students' socioeconomic background, and motivation for learning, help schools to measure a wider range of 21st century skills beyond math, reading, and science, providing opportunities for global peer learning among teachers and school leaders. So yeah, this is basically what the PISA survey or test is about. So uh, I'm always skeptical about making relationships between results from a given survey because I feel like sometimes they don't really make sense. We are just saying that, oh, uh, people like people who do this also do this other thing or people who do this also behave like this way. Uh, for example, you know, you can say things like people who shower twice a day also own pet chickens. Uh, sure, okay, so nice observation from the survey, but it, it's not very helpful. So, of course, it's not 100% true that if you do very well academically, you will definitely have a very strong sense of fear of failure. And from the results of the survey, uh, it turns out that most Asian countries have reported an above average percentage of fear of failure. Uh, so for Singapore, for example, we do particularly well in the academic aspects of things. So we are all sort of above average when it comes down to, say, our reading abilities. So uh, that makes sense. But also in other countries whereby their reading competency is slightly lower or below the average of the, the PISA uh, standard, we still see that these Asian countries have an above average percentage of students with a strong sense of fear of failure. On the other hand, there are also countries like Germany and Denmark that has reported above average reading performance and below average fear of failure. So I guess perhaps from this result, we can already tell the difference in the culture when it comes to risk-taking when we compare ourselves to our Western counterparts. And in this questionnaire, there are three questions that are being asked regarding the fear of failure. So first question is, when I'm failing, I worry about what others think about me. And 72% of uh, the Singaporean students selected strongly agree or agree so the second question is, when I'm failing, I'm afraid that I might not have enough talent. So 70% of the students uh, selected strongly agree slash agree. And then finally, when I'm failing, this makes me doubt my plans for the future. 78% voted strongly agree and agree. So, you know, after seeing these stats, I also took some time to think about my own past experience. And indeed, you know, I shared these concerns more so back then than now, 
But I remember very clearly that even though during my second year at the RNCM, I really thought that I am not going to have a career in music anymore. Uh, I said to myself, I have to finish this degree because I, because if I don't, it feels like I am bringing shame to my family and it feels like they have invested in me and people are going to talk and, you know, it'll just be really difficult for my uh, parents to answer these questions. So I thought like I have to finish it. Then when I come back to Singapore, I can just do whatever I want. It doesn't really matter. So I guess part of a huge part of me still has that uh, sense of worrying about what people would think about me if I say dropped out of school or failed or whatnot, right? The next thing is also uh, I remembered the first time I had to retake a module or quote-unquote I had to retain because I've, that has never happened to me before. I've had years whereby academically I was not doing great, but I never had the need to retain or to repeat a year. So when, when I found out that I could potentially be doing an extra term in school and not graduate on time, that kind of made me panicked and... Of course, it's not not a great feeling. And then I, I went ahead to <laughs> try to appeal for that decision and try to get it over 10. But turns out I could do these modules concurrently with uh, during my third year. So it was not a problem. I still managed to graduate on time. But that kind of really uh, scared me uh, quite a bit. And of course, uh, just don't get me started about <laughs> the lack of talent. Uh, I don't think in my life I will ever be able to get past this struggle uh, yeah, <laughs> and <laughs> it's just such a, a difficult thing to to tell yourself, right? That you are good enough or you, you know, you are talented enough because no, no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just <laughs> just no. I, I worked, I have to work hard and, you know, we have to practice and there's really kind of no secret to this, right? If you, in order to become good at something, it's not really about talent, but it's more about, uh, hard work and of course uh, do I wish that I have a little bit more talent so I don't have to work as hard yeah for sure so <laughs> there's definitely something that uh, will be a constant struggle so back to th to this idea that these students are really afraid of failure and I, I mean I must say that to a certain extent I can relate to these students but also at the same time uh, <laughs> some some of these students might have never ever failed a test in their life. So stakes are high, right? So you're on a streak at the moment. Uh, much like uh, this podcast, we've been going on for 35 straight weeks. It's a streak. And I'm glad that I'm still speaking today and we are not, uh, and the streak lives on, right? We're not breaking it. So uh, while for me, you know, at the age of, age of 15, I'm, you know, seeing red lines on my report card was becoming normal. Uh, doesn't make it any easier year after year, but uh, it, it wasn't a big deal in a way because uh, it has already happened, right? The streak has been broken, so yeah, absolutely fine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it was okay. It didn't hurt as much, I guess. From an academic point of view, I, I definitely are able to see why students are slightly worried about uh, failing. 
So I guess what made me want to dig a little deeper was that I've been listening to people who I respect speak about how school was invented. So to not go into too much detail about the evolution of the school and education system, the initial idea of school was to churn out enough factory workers for the industrial age so that the industrialists are able to increase productivity and have a surplus of worker. And once you have a surplus of worker, they can probably pay each worker less. Uh, workers needed to comply and work in a system or supply chain. Workers are commodity, replaceable cocks in a machine. So it's okay if John doesn't show up for work today because Jane could easily take his spot and perhaps to a certain extent, be willing to work at a slightly lower rate because everyone is the same, you know. Uh, of course, this happened more than 200 years ago. Uh, if you want to find out more about the evolution of the education system, you can click on the link in the show notes to listen to the TED Talk given by Seth Godin regarding the education system, which I found to be super interesting. And of course, the title of the talk is Stop Stealing Dreams. So, yeah, very interesting title and I think enough to, to pick the interest. To, to give the education system some credit, of course, over the years, things has been refined, you know, but some fundamental principles and how it works, I think, still remains the same. For example, uh, why do we put on a uniform? Because we become all the same, Right. We become uniform when we put on this costume. Why don't we call it like a school costume? Why don't we call it like a school attire? Why is it called a uniform? Because that's the, that's the purpose of this particular set of clothing, right? Each morning, we start the day with good morning, miss someone as a form of respect, some would say. But why isn't a good morning or a hello good enough? Uh, does adding a Mr. or Mist in front of the surname makes you respect the teacher more? We are assessed based on how good we are at memorizing and regurgitating information. And this is part of the reason that I have found it extremely difficult to pick up reading as a hobby. And this kind of this kind of scarred me for, for life. Because for the longest time, my relationship with reading was to memorize contents of a textbook for an exam. And that surely wasn't fun and enjoyable. And, you know, if you ask me, that is probably like the absolute last thing that I would do was to pick up a textbook and start reading it from beginning to the end again. Maybe some of you enjoy it. I don't know. But I certainly do not. When was the last time that you walked into a bookstore or went on book depository and said to yourself, I'm really interested in learning how to play the guitar. But before that, let me buy myself a textbook on guitar, go take a test. And after I pass the test, finally I can buy my own guitar and start strumming like a pro. So I do appreciate that in certain areas of our lives, tests are important, but memorizing from a textbook Mm, I'm not so sure. I don't think that it is that useful, you know. So say, for example, if you're good at memorizing, chances are you'll do well for exams. And when you do well for exams, does it say anything apart from that you are really good at taking exams? 
you know, why is the 10 year series a thing? Surely, I remember for me, you know, by the third paper, you start to see a particular trend and pattern in these questions that the questions are repeated with different variables. And if you do it really well, guess what? You know, you move on. And what are you awarded with? With more memorization to do, which sounds absolutely ridiculous to me. So in an environment whereby there are no incentives, if you come up with a creative solution, in fact, sometimes because you did not follow the given system, but you still arrive at the correct answer, you get penalized because you did not follow the content or you do not follow the syllabus that was being taught to you. You went astray. You went with a different method. You achieved the same result, but that doesn't matter because you went the wrong way. We can't give you the full marks. For me, that in itself also doesn't really make sense. The, the conversations teachers usually have with our parents, I, I believe we can do a little bit better. For, for example, things that are never in the conversation between your parents and your teachers are your child held the door today for someone because the other person behind her had her hands full and she did a really nice thing. So th these things are, are never being said, you know. We never talk about these things. Instead, we hear statements like, your child is spending too much time with his CCA. He should cut down on that and focus more on his academics because that is his responsibility as a student. So this, this statement might or might not have come from personal experience. I leave that to you. <laughs> you know, we hardly discuss about the student's passion and or what they really care about. We automatically assume that what they have to do is to just get good grades study hard because that is the responsibility of the student. Get good at taking exams, right? Regurgitate information, memorize things. You know, why does all these things even matter? And I remember my mathematics teacher once told me that if you don't pass your test, you're not allowed to go to band practice. And of course, you can imagine that didn't go down very well with me. So now as CCA instructors, coaches, what can we do to allow students to embrace failure and take more risk and have a more positive sort of self-worth? Since CCAs are designed for students to develop skill sets that are not being highlighted in the classroom, right? So, uh, however, I think we need to approach this quite sensibly and understand what is within our control and what is not. So uh, I am a believer of the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. So actually the school culture for me plays a huge part in molding the student's ability to let go of this idea of like, I'm not allowed to make a mistake. I'm not allowed to voice my opinion because I might just get shut down for it and things like that. So as instrumental tutors or band directors, I think we have to acknowledge that students like us are not able to change the way we approach a given activity as if we are flipping a switch. We cannot expect them to turn up the band and then be like, yeah, now you just shut down and you don't behave like how you be behave on most days on, you know, over a period of what must be like six to seven hours 
of behaving in a particular way, answering questions in a particular way, for them to just be like, I'm going to stop all this and, you know, we, we, I'm just going to be diff uh, I'm just now going to be this super risk taker and be afraid to make mistakes. No, I, I don't think it works like that. Uh, chances are we have to try to engage them in a conversation and what is likely going to happen initially is that you're not going to get any response. I find that um, for me, certain schools warm up to me differently. Some of the schools after one year, some of the schools after a couple of weeks, they can chat to you or they can chat with you about music and they can chat with you quite openly really depends on the school culture and just generally how the, the students are wired and, and behave, right? But why, why is it important to engage them in this sort of conversation? Because we are now trying to get them to come out of this shell, right? That otherwise they'll, they'll just be thinking, why risk saying something wrong when I can just sit here and not participate? and not be penalized. If I don't participate, means that I'm not going to be wrong, which is better than me participating and then saying something that's wrong. Why should I shout out the fingering of G flat if there's a risk of me getting it wrong? We have to also engage the, the students in the, the right type of conversation. And I think what we need to do is to empower students and encourage them to engage in open-ended discussions and let them form their own opinions. So you could ask them, for example, what do you feel about the characteristics of this particular section of the music? And why do you feel that way? How can you better portray the characteristics of the music by changing certain musical elements? For, say, for example, your articulation, your tempo, and things like that. And allow them to try out what they said before telling them, it's not going to work or it doesn't work. And if after trying that, indeed, as you predicted, did not work, you have to explain to them why it doesn't. For example, you played the first three bars way too loud. So we are not able to create a contrast in the next three bars, which is written in a higher dynamic. Right? So when you explain to them, that, oh, right, this is the reason why my decision initially wasn't as well-informed. And that's okay. So we repeat the second time and then we just play the initial three bars a little bit quieter so that in the next three bars, we can hear the contrast in the dynamic. Yeah, so this idea of trial and error is super important. So get them engaged in this sort of conversation and this sort of trial and error process by to come up with the best a musical picture or to, to be able to communicate the, their message of the music as best as possible. Uh, the next thing, uh, which is also, which is the next thing, which is a super important thing, and that is to get rid of the concept of perfection. Stop telling students that practice makes perfect because it doesn't. Why does it not why does it not make perfect? Very simple, because perfection does not exist. This became super apparent to me since the start of the pandemic. After doing numerous recording projects from my bedroom to the proper recording studios to most recently at the Aspenet Recital Studio, 
I can say that perfection is unattainable because this is art and we will never be satisfied with our craft. That after one take, there is always that little bit, you know, that crotchet or that minimum or that long note or that run that wasn't as clear, that wasn't as in tune, that wasn't as supported, that wasn't as sustained and I moved away from the, the mic and my instrument was pointing in a slightly different direction during this second. So all these things, you know, uh, happens and to a certain extent, some of the things are within our control, some of the things are really not. So if we are not after perfection, then what are we after? Very simple, we are after excellence. So some points that will contribute to musical excellence for me are, for example, conviction in communicating the music across to the audience. So how clear is the phrasing, right? Do we have good contours in the phrasing? Have we made good decisions in the choice of breaths? Are we creating good dynamic contrast? Are we playing in style? Are we using our articulation as best as possible to create the musical picture that we want to portray? Sound technical approach in challenging passages. So this might not work sometimes and it's okay, but we need to make sure that our approach is positive, that we are, for example, approaching a high note the right way. We are not biting too hard or we are not putting too much pressure on our pressure on our lips and we are not pressing down the strings um, too much or we are not tensing up our bow hand things like that right uh, so we need to approach the high notes the right way use the right type of air and sometimes it doesn't work and that's okay because at least we have a good thought process and we are not just you know rolling the dice and just chucking a lot of air and hoping hoping that it works a good preparation that would not be undone because of the anxiety. So uh, this simply means that whatever you've prepared is not through muscle memory. So muscle memory is the first thing to go whenever we start to get a little bit more nervous or when we are experiencing any sort of anxiety. What, what do I mean by that is that the preparation, lots of slow practice, lots of organized uh, technical things, good rhythm in the fingers, making sure we are playing the right notes, the right pitches, playing on the correct partials, playing in tune. So practice slowly, then scale it up to tempo rather than just playing at one tempo. So sometimes I see students, they don't do this preparation of starting a little bit slower. So for example, they see that in the piece, it's written, uh, this is, 138 BPM. So I'm going to start straight off at 138 BPM and I'm going to keep practicing at this tempo and until I make it, right? Fake it till you make it, as they say. So, and this is definitely a, definitely a way, is also a very painful way. And what you'll realize is that that particular student that has adopted this way of practicing, when you slow this passage down to say half tempo, to like a 76 or as a 78 or 79 you they can't play they they it yeah they just can't slow down 
They can't play any faster than 138. They can't play any slower than 138. So they become ingrained with muscle memory, right? So this is a, a sign. If they can't scale the tempo up or down and switch the tempo, it simply means that they are 100% relying on mas muscle memory. And one tempo, or they've heard the recording once, and that is the version, and they just instill that version in their head, and they only play in that one tempo. So that's not healthy, because, yeah, muscle memory, very, very easy to let us down. Okay, so many layers of preparation. And these are just three things that come off, uh, came off the top of, top of my mind. So if three thing, these three things are, are there, there is going to be a certain level of musical excellence in the end product, I'm sure. Okay, so if you split a really high note or you squeaked in the middle of the phrase, that doesn't mean that your performance is not excellent, right? On a grand scheme of things, this is one very small flaw that could eventually become insignificant. Of course, what is not okay is you let that one mistake snowball into something that is bigger and that would, of course, then impact the, the bigger picture. Yeah. So, uh, the next thing, uh, acknowledge and provide opportunities for students that work the hardest and make the most progress and not always the ones that are the best in the lot. Because no one is born to do this and we should be looking at how far students have progressed above anything else. Yeah, the, the idea of this growth mindset that everyone is starting at a different place or everyone has progressed from a different place. And the most important thing is, has the student progressed over this period of time? And if yes, great. If, if no, then we will continue to work to find a solution, to find a method that perhaps uh, the student can resonate with to help them progress as best as possible. Be a toddler that is learning how to walk. Keep falling, keep trying, because failure is only failure when you give up. Right? The toddler don't give up on learning how to walk. They keep trying and they keep trying. They don't judge if they fall. Uh, they don't judge themselves if they fall. Right? So imagine if the toddler is judging them themselves and they tell themselves that mm, perhaps this walking thing isn't really for me. Think about how many of us right now would not be able to walk and we'll still be like crawling on our feet to get from point A to point B. Why are we asking ourselves questions like, what would you do if you knew that you're not going to fail? This, question, this particular question is not useful at all because what you are saying is like, oh, in the most ideal world where you know that nothing is going to go wrong, where there's zero risk, what are you going to do? Well, you could do anything in, in this case, right? If there's zero risk, you could say that, oh, I want to go to the moon. I want to go to the Mars. And yeah, you can say basically really anything in the world, right? Shouldn't the question be, what would you do if you knew you might fail? When you know that you might fail, but you still chose to do it, isn't that something that is worth doing and worth investing your time in because you're so interested in it and that even if you fail, it's okay. So I would like to end off with this quote by Seth Godin. And I quote, Fitting in is a short-term strategy that gets you nowhere. Standing out 
is a long-term strategy that takes guts and produces results. If you care enough about your work to be willing to be criticized for it, then you have done a good day's work. End quote. Thank you for listening. We will be back the next few weeks with some wonderful guests. And with that, we'll sign off on this episode of You Play A What. You have been listening to You Play A What, hosted by Vincent Tan. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button so that you'll be notified when a new episode is posted. Rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends if you feel so inclined. The theme music for the podcast is entitled Midnight Affairs and is composed by Algodas Matonis and recorded by Vincent Tan. Thank you so much for listening to You Play or What? Until next time. Thank you.